Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, a forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. This episode, we speak with Dr. Ananta Giri Kumar, a professor at the Madras Institute of Development Studies. He was a speaker at the recent conference hosted at CIIS called Sustainability and Contemplative Civilization, the Integral Vision of Sri Aurobindo. And we will be joined by Hemalata Swaminathan, an East-West Psychology PhD student, to discuss with Ananta his presentation topic at the conference, entitled Cultivating Contemplative Civilization and a New Civilization of Love and Ahimsa. engagement with civilization uh, that the conference points to has an epochal significance. Because 100 years ago, there was a very deep engagement with the civilizational question. You know, in the backdrop of the whole bottom of, you know, the civilizing mission, but Arnold Toynbee, Oswald Spengler, and Pitrim Sorokin, you know, from different, they really, you know, cultivated a very deep space of civilizational engagement. And Tagore wrote about crisis of civilization, Gandhi, Freud, and, you know. So today we are also at a turning point of humanity, but it is not accompanied by a similar kind of deep and multidimensional engagement with the question of civilization. So the conference, the significance of the conference can be looked at from that point of view. The second thing is that the very idea of civilization, the very idea of civilization has been done in such a way that it is predicated upon uh, a narrative of civilized and the uncivilized. But who has made that, uh, you know, definition? It's the so-called civilizers, you know. And, and today, this is uh, needs to be questioned. And the third thing is that the whole civilizational discussion is still within a mode of uh, Euro-American hegemony. And, and that hegemony is also blindness. And, uh, and so what the conference, uh, you know, helps us to open the journey of civilization and thinking about it with Sri Aurobindo and, and Gandhi and many other <laughs> ways, you know. And so, and that way, this conference is a possibility to be part of a planetary conversation. And uh, so this, this theme may be brought into understanding the significance of civilization. Another theme that I could bring to the conversation is the question of civilization and the challenge of suffering. 
and and then the accompanying challenge of healing because uh, and then today our world is in need of healing and how contemplative civilization can contribute to the manifold healing works so i have written a book on it called social healing so your paper's title is cultivating contemplative civilization and a new civilization of love and ahimsa global responsibility and new initiatives in healing justice dialogues and planetary realizations and so it seems like what you just mentioned is really a core to to what you'll be talking about in your paper and if i could just read the first couple uh sentences here of your abstract we could we could uh, just get into more of the specific material um, and kind of cultivate a little bit more about what you were just speaking about so the, the first couple sentences read our civilizations are in crisis and we need new initiatives in cultivating new civilization our dominant civilizations are entangled in multiple webs of domination and violence towards nature, the divine, self, and society. As Walter Benjamin challenges us to realize, every document of civilization is a document of barbarism. So that's a very striking, um, striking statement um, that I really do resonate with in so many ways. And so to extend this question of the kind of the the Western or the Euro-Western centric notion of civilization building or civil the, the modern modernity as as the dominant civilization and how it's been kind of deployed globally. How do we understand this this statement in terms of every document of civilization is a document of barbarism? Could you talk about that a little bit? Thank you. And just to you know sometimes on standing in literary studies there is a very beautiful path of what is called as family resemblance <laughs> or, uh, i think the great philosopher wittgenstein spoke about it and uh, in textual studies there is also a very interesting uh, path of intertextuality so to understand uh, benjamin so let us open ourselves to two, uh, you know, similar uh, thoughts. One from Sri Aurobindo in Human Cycles. He's uh, writing about what he called as, you know, economic barbarism. And, you know, before the way and physical barbarism, that how in modern civilization, this preoccupation with body and externality and profit so there is a very interesting resonance to think about, you know, um, Benjamin's statement and Sri Aurobindo's uh, lines in Human Cycles. And also here to offer ourselves to Gandhi and, for example, in his Hind Suraj, he, uh, his, uh, you know, reflection on modern civilization, he uses a word called satanic. And he would just end. And so these three things, and just to, they have some resemblances with each other. But what they're pointing to is that how a civilization like modern Western civilization is a document of barbarism in multiple sense. And uh, though that is also 
in need of a critique of the very discourse of the barbarian. And uh, I do not know whether Benjamin, uh, you know, is you know is engaged in that today. As we realize that uh, every document of civilization, especially not especially in an exclusionary sense, but in a self-reflective sense. You know, European civilization, the so-called Hindu civilizations, you know, that, you know, civilization discourse that uh, Huntington brought, I think, almost 30 years ago, the class of civilizations. So the kind of civilizations that he's dealing with, we find that how they're entangled in so much of violence and annihilation. And, uh, and, and therefore, it is uh, into this. Even, uh, you know, many uh, scholars from India, a bit on reflective way, they, are, they beat their chest to see that how Indian civilization is uh, so essentially different from other civilizations, but they do not have the element of self-criticality. And, uh, you know, even the so-called tolerant Hindu civilization in the name of, uh, you know, at particular moment, how they have killed the other. Uh, for example, in South India, where we were, there was a very fertile space of the Jainas and the Buddhists, you know, and where are they today? And they just didn't get vanished. They were eliminated, you know, and annihilated. And uh, so, therefore, each of these civilizations have their own, you know, very painful entanglement in, in violence and annihilation. And Benjamin's statements uh, points to that. Uh, and, and that also is in need of a profound critique of the very dichotomy uh, between uh, the civilization and the barbarians. Because who called the people as barbarians? It is the, the articulators of the discourse of civilization itself, you know, like the Romans, you know. And so that itself is a very problematic term. And uh, so therefore, our critique of civilization today, building on, uh, on Benjamin, also must include a critique of this very discourse of barbarism. And... Uh, and today we need to speak about earth civilizations because people who are living with earth and especially the earth people, our indigenous people, our primal people, they are not non-civilized. You know, they have their own ways of technology and living and, you know, so today we need to have you know, depend the very discourse of civilization beyond the dichotomy between the civilization, civilized and the barbarian, and come to a foundational reconceptualization of civilization itself, you know, which is a multidimensional task of rethinking in anthropology, in philosophy, sociology, history, and civilizational studies. It's, it's interesting to me to think about um how some of the thinkers that i've been studying are engaged in this this problem of civilization and yet are still using the, these these types of binary terms by by basically turning the terms around on the other um for instance stiegler 
I mean, going right back to, um, you know, coming out of Horkheimer and Adorno and their uh, analysis of the culture industries. But Stiegler is very, very openly um, talking about the barbarism of like the, the, the technocratic politicians and and uh, the corporations and whatnot. And so it's interesting because at first that idea actually very much rang true to say, actually, I see barbarism more with from the the very fabric from the in in inside the institutions that um a lot of the institutions that i have was have kind of grown up in and seen um as they've kind of the power um structures have kind of solidified and whatnot in my life uh, and the indus the market industries have have grown to be so over determinative of everything yet we're still using the, the that term barbarism um does is does that not um does that not mean that we are fixed in a kind of a binary in the problem here we're just reversing the 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 power dynamics yes maybe for an ethical good and for a political good um but how is it that we can reapproach um the idea of civilization without repeating the same structure structures which gave rise to the hegemony that we see um what we've seen through colonization and its transposition into the modern times and that's just a question of asking uh, can we be speaking about building a new civilization or is that question itself problematic from the ground up yes so this question itself so we need to open up the civilizational question in these very foundational ways which uh, is uh, we cannot be absorbed or we are not isolated from uh, the challenge of uh, rethinking the very term of civilization itself. And that brings us to a very difficult question of definition. And, uh, and in uh, thinking about, for example, in anthropology and sociology, there is a legacy of distinction between culture and civilization. And so, for example, it is our indigenous people, they have culture, and modern people have civilization, for example. Now, technology becomes a marker of, uh, you know, civilization. But all these are very problematic definitions. So today, we need to open up the question of uh, civilization along the, you know, produced uh, distinctions and characteristics. But in, philosoph in a philosophy of science way, we also rethink the definition itself differently. That because if we have a very essentialistic, you know, approach to defining, and that itself is the problem. So what I uh, invite us to think about that, Today, to define not only civilization, but anything, building on very creative challenges from including Sri Aurobindo and, you know, many, and, you know, science and new philosophy of science. So how do we develop a non-definitional way of defining? And, uh, and a non-definitional way of defining is like a pointer. It points to certain aspects but not in an exclusive definitional sense. 
So with, with that, then, you know, we can uh, have certain understanding of, uh, you know, civilizations, but not in an exclusionary definitional way, such as technology and... Yes, Stephen, please. Thank, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna I just want to bracket something. Uh, I invited uh, a, one of our um, dissertation students, one of our uh, senior PhD students uh, to join us. This is uh, Hemlata Swaminathan. Hema is from uh, Chennai and is writing her dissertation on a subject that I think really kind of overlaps with the work that you're doing. So I had asked her to join us and sort of at the last minute, and I put her under a lot of pressure to come, but she's agreed to come. So I just wanted to introduce introduce the two of you. This is uh, Dr. Ananta Kumar Giri. Uh, Hema. Uh, I've read about um, you and... Um... What you just, and I'm really glad to be here, though Stefan said that this is last minute, and yes, it was, but I think I have been um, reading up and trying to understand your work over the last one week, um, and I think um, if I may just have a question with what you just said, I want, wanted to understand um, something that we were speaking about in terms of civilization, and um, just wanted to know when we say civilization, how much are we talking about? And you said we cannot have exclusive definition. So when we when we look at the word inclusive, how are we also making space for non-human inclusions in civilization? Or what, what is their role in civilization? Yes, yeah, so this is again a very profound uh, you know, thought and a profound invitation for us. And in fact, uh, our civilizational journey, in a very broad sense, it has been a journey, the human, nature, and divine. But what has happened is that modernistic discourses of civilization, because prior to modernistic discourse of civilizations, we have also many reflections on civilizations and where they were much more open to nature, for example. And uh, Tagore has a very deep uh, reflection here, I think in his book Sadhana, where he's inviting us to understand the difference between, say, Roman civilization and Indian civilization. And where Tagore is saying, that the Roman civilization and that the Greco-Roman civilization is city-based. And, and that city-based civilization has a primacy of the city, but that city has the primacy of police, P-O-L-I-S, and that police is accompanied by police. And I, this is my interpretation of Tagore, that, you know, police and the police, P-O-L-I-C-E, and then, you know, so from the beginning, the very discourse of civilization in the Greco-Roman world around the city as police, and that itself has been very exclusionary because who were able to vote in Athenian democracy? Only a few. And, and, and then it was guarded by police, P-O-L-I-C-E. And therefore, if you look at the modern nation state-based civilization, the same thing, the primacy of politics, the city, 
and then uh, the police, the violence, you know, the structure of violence. But Tagore is saying that Indian civilization is forest-based. And forest-based civilizations have already a very sensitive journey with nature. And, and there is not a dichotomy between the city and the countryside, the rural, and also nature, you know. Therefore, in anthropology, this whole distinction between nature and culture. So it is a product of one civilizational constellation. But because the anthropological theorists are from the civilizational matrix, and all the scientists, you know, they have made so much about it, the distinction between nature and culture. But in reality, today what is happening, the new developments in anthropology, in philosophy of science, for example, even philosopher Jürgen Habermas has a very important book 20 years ago called The Future of Human Nature. And, and there he's developing a very beautiful path of what is called a weak naturalism, and that weak naturalism is acknowledging nature, you know, bringing nature in however soft sense it can be. But it is the kind of the beginning. So therefore, in forest-based civilization, the place of nature, the non-human, is at the center of it. In fact, civilization is co-constituted by this kind of collaboration. Therefore, if you go to a story like Sakuntala, for example, and that, in fact, today that has a very interesting relevance because in India, <laughs> now, you know, it's a very difficult question now and they are trying to rename, you know, India to Bharat. But where did Bharat, you know, get his sense of life? Not in the palace, you know, but he get the sense of life and love in Karnamuni's ashram. Isn't it, you know? And the deers, the plants, and they live in, in harmony. So without that co-presence of the plants and the animals, Sakuntala would not have been what she is. And, and her ability to, <laughs> to create ripple in the heart of Bharata would have been different. That's quite beautiful. Um, it... it uh... <laughs> It shut me up for a moment. I really had to kind of let that sink in. It's a really, uh, really lovely. I'm. I. I just want to take a step back. And you were talking about definitions before, and this is something that's always been a, a question for me because we have. Uh, you know, I'm in academia, and in academia we generate definitions, and yet when I think about growing up just my you know my life growing up as a child in the united states so much of what i accepted was accepted tacitly or without really thinking about it the definitions that i inherited and often uh those th those words that i that i assumed had a particular uh definition i may have even actually been misunderstanding so there's a there's a way in which there's a kind of a definition definitional drift maybe uh and words take on new meanings. And those meanings are often tied to emotions, emotional states. They can, these can be manipulated by politicians, but they're often these upwellings that are coming from the people that may not be tied to what we're being told on the television or from you know the halls of academia. 
Um, and I know there's, I mean, there's a, there's a question in here somewhere. I'm, I can't really get at it, but I'm really curious about the way in which um, we, we view uh, the world that we live in and the impulses that may be guiding us from behind. So Hema brought up non-human inclusions, and I, I often think of uh, what Shri Aurobindo and the mother talked about in terms of uh, you know, the subtle world and the, the influence of uh, the divine, the, divi the hand that the divine has in the unfolding of the world that we live in, and the requirement, in a way, if you could put it that way, of surrender, of trust, of faith, um, that things are moving in the direction that they need to, even in the face of what looks like ecological disaster and the creep of kind of technocracy and um, non-sustainable um, civilization. So I know that's a mouthful, but I'm wondering if maybe you could speak to that. Oh, thank you, Stephen, <laughs> so much. And uh, and uh, that is so beautiful indeed. And uh, you are also inviting us to multiple, you know, multiple uh, movements of acknowledgement. For example, the inclusion of the non-human, uh, you know, via a creative sociology of knowledge. And uh, I have written a book uh, called The Calling of Global Responsibility, and, uh, and in which I talk about uh, the movements like the World Social Forum and the Alter Globalization Movement. Now, interestingly, this alter globalization movement, that another world is possible. And uh, that not only brought, for example, the question of the poor and the marginalized, and also the marginalized cultures to some extent, as the World Social Forum began in, in, uh, in Brazil 20 years ago, or 22 years ago. But there was also a very profound thing that this whole alter globalization movement, that another world is possible, that also creates a space for a movement like the multi-species thinking. Uh, like, for example, what uh, Donna Harawi, you know, not very far from uh, San Francisco in Santa Cruz, has been uh, talking about this whole multi-spacing, our multi-species existence, including coexistence. And from a sociology of knowledge point of view, that, that has been possible because of the alter-globalization movement, whose world is, there are many worlds. You know? And I visited uh, the Chiapas in uh, Mexico, in uh, near the San Cristobal La Casas in Mexico in 2005, you know. And they were talking about this whole idea of the multiple worlds. And they also talked about an intergalactic dialogue. Therefore, these, these words are there and they are not being spoken only by spiritual seekers like Sri Aurobindo and the mother. So the invitation for us is to bring 
these realizing conversations together. And uh, for example, multi-species thinking. And here we can, uh, you know, build off on mother's relationship to cat, for example. You know, uh, mother, you know, I think had a cat and, you know, and uh, like that. And today, this kind of reflections are coming in anthropology. It's a very beautiful field of, you know, multi, you know, level thinking, multi-sensory thinking. So to which I am joining these conversations, that the very idea of sense itself, what we call as common sense, that how our sensual, our sense uh, cultivation of our senses, like touch, for example, hearing. Now, who hears better? Not the human beings, but the dogs, for example. So how today we certainly, and this is related to the civilizational question, because what has happened is that always the civilizational spokespersons, for example, both all the spokespersons in different ways, they always talk, talk, and talk. And they not only talk, but they talk down. <laughs> so along with crisis of civilization, what is needed is a foundational shift from a kind of a discursive civilization to a listening civilization. And modernity is in critical need for that. But how do we develop our capacity to listen? Is it going to fall from the sky? Now, in our university system, for example, now we are joining the seminars. And if you attend a seminar in an American university, you would uh, not make a difference between whether it is a seminar room or a war room, you know, or a battleground. <laughs> and what has happened in the TV show today, whether it is a seminar, a TV show, or a battleground, you know. And therefore, we are in need of listening. But how do we develop the art of listening? There is no preparation for that in our learning process. And so listening in a multi-species way, for example, if we spend more time with dogs and birds, and so our ability to listen would be cultivated. And regarding mother's work, and another work that we can relate to the new development in sociology of science is we have a very inspiring thinker named Bruno Latour, you know, who created a new way of thinking about object. And he's saying that objects are co-constitutive of social reality. For example, now I, we are speaking with each other and all the objects that are co-present with us they are constitutive of our relational field. But if objects are constitutive of our relational field, how do we relate to objects? But the, our relationship with object is already part of a very domineering logic of object as just object. You know? And uh, though we talk about the dualism of the subject and object, but even in science, though we need to be objective, Science has not really cultivated a path of reverence, what Albert Schweitzer called a reverence for life, vis-a-vis -vis the existence of objects. 
Now, what mother is saying, I remember this line from one mother's uh, statement. She's saying that when you are dealing with any object, even a pillow or a chair, just do not throw it out. And that this small line, you know, was a very deep presence in me that, you know, that how do we relate to objects with a sense of deep respect? And this is also the thought from uh, Bruno Latour. So therefore, in terms of uh, our, uh, you know, um, you know, multiple ways of relating as objects are becoming more or more or more significant. Technology, for example, you know, that technology has played a very important role in the civilizational journey, and it is going to play a far more important role. But how do we relate to the technology, uh, and uh, also bring a sense of respect and friendship, and not be too afraid of the technology? And yes, there are challenges, but if we suffer from an essential sense of fear, and that fear is emerging from a sense of domination, that is, the humans need to always dominate the technological world. Not necessarily. We can think of multiple ways of co-constitutive, you know, collaborative, evolutionary flourishing in which nature, human, divine, now, the, again, now bringing the divine here is, uh, you know, it might seem, you know, very, you know, a kind of uh, uh, a difficult, difficult language, but bringing God back in or bringing the divine back in. And today our contemporary crisis is also a crisis of that because God divine and Brahma, for example, all these are different words, but these are not just different words. For example, what kind of possibilities emerge when we relate to God with a spirit of Brahma, you know? And because God in the Abrahamic tradition is of a particular kind, Brahma in the traditions of thinking. So, and then bringing God, for example, God in the Abrahamic tradition could be understood in a particular way. And when certain difficult things happened, like Holocaust, the question is, where was God? But even people themselves have also narrated that God was co-present in the Holocaust itself. And therefore, the faith that has emerged, you know, Viktor Frankl, for example, you know, how could Viktor Frankl you know, the great, uh, you know, soul that he is, you know, how could he even, you know, get the courage to write these little notes? So therefore, bringing the divine, not bringing the divine back, but bringing the divine back as an invitation for re-realizing the co-presence of the divine in our journey of history. And therefore, it is an invitation for rethinking historiography. Uh, for example, in contemporary rethinking of historiography, uh, Deepesh Chakrabarti, you know, for teachers in Chicago, has brought the climate question as a fundamental way of rethinking historiography, the climate of history. But the similar kind of attempt has not been brought vis-a-vis -vis the divine co-presence. Why is not? Because most of 
the social scientists, their worldview is secular. And, you know, though Habermas talks about the need for the post-secular, but the journey of the post-secular from the womb of the secular is a very difficult journey. But even the post-secular in this is really an extension of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Habermas himself is saying that I talk about post-metaphysical, but if you press me to the ground, I have two metaphysics. One is the metaphysics of Kant, and the other is the Judeo-Christian tradition. He does not, he acknowledges that he does not know Buddhism, what to speak of Islam. So therefore, re-realizing the divine here is a profound intellectual challenge because most of our intellectuals are kind of a produced in a worldview where the divine is not realized. But still, some historians, for example, in India, we had a very inspiring historian named Miss Musirul Hassan, who has written a book called Faith and History on Gandhi, bringing faith. And if we look at the work of Martin Luther King Jr. here in America, and what could happen with King, and before that with Abraham Lincoln, you know, that there was a faith dimension at work. And, 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 and that faith also played a role in the setting of the historical. Yeah, beautiful words, Ananta. Really, really profound. A lot to contemplate here. Um, and I really appreciate the, you know, when we met in, in uh, Pondicherry and you presented for our class um, from CIS, from EWP there in Oroville, um, there was a deeply contemplative atmosphere that that you really um, kind of built and you created along with us. You co-created in a way, but you really led the way um, in terms of the importance of not only sharing ideas, but bringing in a contemplative posture, which I think is, um, the, is the effective side of, of the ideas themselves. Um, and you could say the effective ground of them in some sense, but... But I just wanted to now ask you uh, to kind of build upon this idea of contemplation. And I really feel like I was saying that that your your work encourages me into a contemplative space, um, into a deepening where I, I'm trying to hold on to these concepts, not as something that is closing certain horizons and telling me this is where to go or what to think or what to do, but really it's, it's these concepts and the words in which it, which these concepts are are kind of built through are really opening and um, kind of opening to multiplicities of horizons. And I just think that's so precious and so important. And so I look forward to your presentations coming up in the conferences um, in at CIS at the end of the or at, in in the coming weeks here. Um, so turning to contemplation, um, can can you? I mean, I love how you were speaking also about listening. And as a musician, I've engaged actually most of my life has been a practice of listening because to play music is not to technically learn how to produce sound out of an instrument only. That's seemingly the. The, like that was that's how the mind can construct the idea of putting together yourself as a musician. How do you become musical? How do you exchange ideas through through sounds while well, you learn how to play your instrument 
you produce sound a certain way and just like ideas um and philosophy there's a lot of weight of history which gives you um the impression or which imposes upon you the the imperative in a lot of cases to sound a certain way this is how a saxophone sounds well why is that well because this is these are the people that are the masters or these this is the authority telling you like in the institution of learning jazz this is the authority saying well this is how a jazz saxophone sounds you're good if you sound this way you'll be accepted into the industry if you sound this way this is speaking a little bit from my perspective and i had a uh i had a moment in my um i had almost it was a mystical a spiritual experience in um in my time as a student where i was playing music with others and the whole the whole um experience of playing music with others the canvas is almost like i had an invert an inversion where it wasn't the eye that was doing the playing the eye that was producing a, a um like a desirable or beautiful sound it was actually the the space of listening i felt like i actually identified more with the others which is the other people involved but also the other elements in that assemblage there would be non-human actors or a as well meaning like there's the space of the room there is the the actual sound the, the materiality that's coming through which has its own type of um type of presence type of importance in the assemblage and so i think that what you're saying about listening this radical listening which is really one way in my experience which disrupts dis disrupted and it's a practice that i use to continually disrupt any type of egocentric or kind of very liberal oriented sense of i am the, the the producer or even that i am the my ear and myself as the perceptive center of of cognizing of organizing this sound it's disruptive of that because you realize you enter into a sound world which is actually not centered around you necessarily it exists outside of your perception in your your specific type of perception of it and what happens if we can actually learn to listen in different ways and that's as i think part of the part of the question especially when it comes to a transcultural practices which you're deeply engaged in as well um so that's a, a little bit uh kind of riffing off of your idea of listening which is very uh, inspiring to me and I think that listening is one of the most healing practices, whether it's in a transcultural hermeneutic sense or a hermeneutical sense, um, which I know your presentation in in uh, Pondicherry addressed. Um, uh, whether it's walking, that's another theme in your work. It's, it's the idea of, of uh, like a peripatetic type of approach of walking um, while thinking as thinking. Um, but can you maybe just talk a little bit more um, and respond to this in terms of how you see contemplation, a contemplative posture, um, and a type of contemplative listening as healing? Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan. And uh, I'm grateful to you for your very deep sharing and also to Stephen and Hema. I... With respect, I just wish to share one constraint that I'm expected to join a group here, a group of students, you know, who are walking to a very important healing ground here, you know, which uh, respects the burial of our indigenous people. So I would share maybe 
a thought for a minute. And then, uh, you know, I may have to beg leave of uh, this very, you know, deep conversation. And if needed, we would have another time for continuing it, if needed, before the conference. <laughs> I hope. And uh, therefore, how this contemplative practice, for example. Now, when we talk about civilization, now that civilization has been mainly thought of in a very externalistic way. And especially in modernistic discourses of civilization. But uh, in other discourses like uh, Tagore's view of civilization, there is a sadhana linked to civilization. And uh, therefore, it is possible to, to realize multiple civilizational journeys and different relationship between the external and the inner. And sadhana, a musical practice, is in fact an entwinement of both. And, and we see that, for example, if Western civilization is certainly is, uh, you know, I know we understand it through music, for example. And that music is also a sadhana, you know, it is that sadhana. And so, therefore, this whole uh, to bring uh, understanding civilization through civilizational practices and through the attention to both the inner and the outer, and that they have been brought together. And uh, the, the question of emotion is also very important in the sense that it is not just a discursive discourse. And there are emotions that are with us. And these emotions, many emotions have been suppressed historically. And now today with, the, with a very little bit of awakening that is happening, especially the indigenous people. Therefore, when the indigenous people are looking at all these definitions, so they are just not relating to it in a philosophical sense. You know, as an abstract idea, it is very much related to our life words. Therefore, the emotions are co-present. But as emotions are co-present, and it is where a spiritual work helps us, because there is a difference between just emotional outburst without taking into account the, the reality of other emotions. But it is a learning process. I think civilization is related to learning in that sense. So how do we create fields of learning at different states where it might begin with a sense of emotional anger or outburst? But that emotional anger, how do we deal with that emotional anger? In India also, the Dalit question, for example, it's a profound question. And uh, even uh, RSS Chief Bhagavat, I read a statement, he's saying that, uh, you know, it is okay for us to suffer for 200 years because our brothers and sisters have suffered for 2,000 years. Now, even in RSS, you know, as uh, politically pulling this statement may be, but, you know, it's a way of, okay, 
our Dalit brothers or sisters are angry. But the response is not anger. The response is understanding. And once we have this understanding, then it gives to a different kind of emotional field. And here, for example, the works in non-violent communication that has happened. We have a very deep thinker. I'm just remembering his name from Israel who created this field of non-violent communication, and I was listening to his talk. So today we need to therefore uh, create this a space for emotions, but also listening to emotions, a space for cultivation of emotions. And it requires a new kind of institutional practice because modern institutions are based on a very one-sided view of constructions of human as only person of reason, but not linking it to emotions. Thanks, Ananta. Um, do you have any more time to spend with us today, or shall we uh, try to uh, catch up with you another time? So we would uh, communicate, and then let us find a, you know, a mutually co-nourishing time in the next days. Yes. Sure, we would love to continue the conversation. And um, Hema, I know Hema has a question. I'm sure Stefan has some questions as well, but um, we'll, we'll put those on hold and um, and let's try to do that. We'll try to continue our conversation in the next couple of days. Lovely. So thank you. And I request both Stefan and Hema to kindly help me with your emails. And yeah. uh, Jonathan. We'll, and we'll get them to you. I also just wanted to thank you for an extraordinary conversation. It was really uh, a pleasure to to listen to you. Um, and I, I look forward to future conversations. Thank you. Mm. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Ananta. Lovely. Yes, Stephen.